with my vest. It's cold today in Los Angeles. Chilly, chilly. Hey, everybody. I'm Kyle Rizdahl. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us, as we like to say. And I'm Amy Scott, in for Kimberly Adams. Thanks for joining us. It's Tuesday, which means it's time to dive deep into a single topic. And today we're all going to get smarter together about something I know very little about, so I'm excited to learn about, the WTO, the World Trade Organization. So what happened was that, and it happens not infrequently on this podcast, is that Kimberly and I were talking about something, and then one of us said, hey, we should do a thing on that. And and our crack producing <laughs> staff, being the crack producing staff that they are, uh, recognized that for what it was, which was, hey, let's do a thing on WTO. So... Uh, we're going to we're going to literally get smart today on the World Trade Trade Organization, what it is, why it matters, what some of the challenges with it are right now. Let's be honest. Um, and and uh, its role in global trade. Yeah. And we've got the right person here to help us do this. Jennifer Hillman. She is a Georgetown law professor and former member of the WTO appellate body, which we will ask about. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. All right. So let's start with just the basic definition and background. What is the WTO? Why does it exist? So the WTO is an international organization. That means it's made up of, in this instance, 164 countries that belong to it. Its basic job is to do a couple of things. One, it's supposed to be a forum where everybody can get together to negotiate rules on international trade. It's also a place where you're supposed to bring your disputes to settle them if you have them. It also serves as a bit of a clearinghouse um, on all kinds of records and, and measures about trade. So if you want to look up what is the tariff schedule of Indonesia or if you want to look up what, this, what was commitments were made in another country, you can go to the WTO and find out all of that. Um, and, and it's also there to provide technical assistance and support to developing countries and least developed countries to make sure they understand what their trading rights are, what their obligations are, and how to make trade flow better uh, in developing countries. It has been around, uh, well, current form since like the mid-ish 90s. Before that, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, GATT, which, which old-timers among us will recognize. Here's my question. Is it doing what people wanted it to do as global trade started to become codified? I would say yes and no. Uh, again, huge changes between the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade that you described, created in 1947, which largely focused on goods, you know, physical products crossing borders. When the WTO came into existence, it added on a whole set of new rules covering trade in services. So again, this is the actual movement of a service across a border. It also included new rules on intellectual property rights in the enforcement of those. It also included new rules on agriculture. So the mm. mandate, if you will, of, of the WTO expanded very substantially. Mm. Um, and there would be some that would say that it's done a pretty good job of keeping the rules on goods trade still up and running. And then there's a lot more controversy about how well it's done in the spaces of agriculture, services, intellectual properties, and, and more. Yeah, so there's been a lot of turmoil in the organization recently, a lot of it having to do with the United States. Can you kind of catch us up on what's broken down and how it's functioning? 
right, right now? Right. So I would say the, the key place where the United States has really weighed in has been over the dispute settlement system. Again, the idea at the WTO hmm. is if you think somebody else is not living up to whatever their WTO commitment is, you can bring a dispute before a panel of three people that will judge, are you right or not? Are your rights being violated? Are you not living up to your obligations? Um, and the United States became very unhappy with a whole series of decisions that were issued by these panels and then ultimately affirmed or confirmed by the appellate body, which is the final arbiter of all the disputes is this appellate body. A, a bit of, if you will, the Supreme Court of International Trade would be this WTO appellate body. And in a whole and series of rules. That is correct. That is correct. I served as one of the seven members. That's what it's supposed to be. Seven members from around the world sitting on this, if you will, uh, court um, reviewing decisions that panels would have made in a given case. And the United States became increasingly unhappy that they lost a large series of cases, mostly involving when the United States chose to put new duties on goods under provisions called the anti-dumping duties, which are if you selling in your home market for, say, $100 and then are turning around and selling that same good in the U.S. market for, say, $60, we would say you are dumping that item to the tune of $40 and we would add on these anti-dumping duties in order to level the playing field. As a result, the United States became very angry at the at the WTO appellate body and accused it of adding rights on to the United I'm sorry, of taking away rights from the United States, rights that we thought we had in 1995, they now said were being taken away by the appellate body or alternatively that the appellate body was adding on obligations that the United States had not agreed to. As a result, the United States chose to block all appointments to the appellate body. As I mentioned, it's supposed to have seven members mm-hmm. sitting. It dwindled and dwindled, and now it has zero members sitting on, on the appellate body. All right, so look, so what do we do if we're trying to codify and regulate global trade and the country that last time I checked, was supposed to be all about rules and regulations and and all of that good stuff, said, no, 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 you can't do this because our feelings got hurt. What do we do? (laughs) Again, it's a great question because this is really at the rub of what's going on right now. Uh, The United States, as one of the largest trading countries in the world, was the biggest proponent of having this rules-based system. And the United States was the biggest proponent of having a binding dispute settlement system. And the United States was the biggest proponent of having this appellate body. And now it's the United States that has killed it. Um, So I think what we actually do is all get back to the negotiating table in Geneva to try to figure out how to fix it. Because it's very clear that the world is better off with a rules-based system where the basic rules of trade are ones that everybody can count on, that you can rely on your trading partners actually enforcing the rules and living up to the commitments that they've made. Can I just interrogate that for a second, the, your your declarative statement that the world is better off with a rules-based system? Makes sense to me, but make the case, would you? So if you don't have a rules-based system, uh, what happens is basically chaos. And the other thing that can easily happen is that you can just be discriminated against uh, just because you're an American. Uh, So in other words, right now, the basic rules of the WTO are you cannot discriminate on the basis of nationality. You can't just decide, well, I like goods coming from X country better than goods coming from Y, so I'm going to treat them better. You cannot do that. You also cannot discriminate in favor of domestic 
production over imported products. If it's the same good, you have to treat them the same. That's the kind of basic rule. If you don't have a rules-based system, then again, you can just have the rules, in essence, pulled out from under you, whether you don't even know it's coming. You've got goods on the water. You've started to ship your goods. And the next thing you know, all of a sudden, the tariffs are higher than you thought, or the goods are not allowed to be imported, or there's a problem with them because the basic rules that you were counting on are no longer applicable. So trade policy can be pretty wonky. (laughs) And I'm wondering if you can help our listeners know why they should care what's happening at the WTO and and how it why it matters that there aren't any judges right now to to uh, help uh, these disputes. Well, I think a really good example would be what's happening right now with respect to trade in steel and aluminum. Uh, the United States mm. is both a large producer of steel and aluminum, and it's a large importer of steel and aluminum. Um, and during the Trump administration, the decision was made to put 25% tariff on steel imports and 10% tariff on aluminum imports. And here's where the rules become very significant. Those, the adding on of those tariffs violated a basic rule that the United States had agreed to. We negotiate how much tariffs are we going to charge on any product with all of our trading partners, and then we bind them into our tariff schedule, which is a pledge that the United States makes of we will not charge more than that amount on um, goods that are imported. The tariffs on steel were bound at 0% duty. So when we all of a sudden now add on this 25% tariff, the rest of our trading partners say, hey, you know, that is not fair and that is a violation of what you agreed to. You agreed to charge a tariff of 0%. So then two things happen. One is everyone challenges the United States' tariffs at the WTO. And secondly, countries start to say, well, if you're going to do that, I'm going to retaliate. I'm going to put tariffs on your products if that's what you're going to do to me. And so you start to see exactly what happens without a rules-based system. It starts to be very much tit for tat. Well, if you put tariffs on me, I'll put tariffs on you. And then I put tariffs on to respond to yours. And pretty soon we start into this spiral where everyone's tariffs goes up and up and the trading system is in a state of chaos. Isn't it true, though, that the WTO recently just ruled uh, against the United States on those steel and aluminum tariffs? That is exactly right. And Catherine Tai, (laughs) the trade representative, basically said tough weenie beanies were doing it anyway. It's a matter of national security. That is, you're exactly right. And and this is, again, one of the reasons why the rules-based system is so important. So again, the United States imposed these tariffs and the United States agrees and admits in before the WTO that, t- that the tariffs violate our bindings. Uh, the other challenge to those tariffs was also that we're applying them to some countries, but not to all. In other words, we applied the tariffs to everyone. And then we said right. to Mexico and Canada, right. actually, we won't impose the tariffs on you. And we decided n- not to impose them on Australia. We put in quotas on Korea and New Zealand, uh, uh, Brazil and Argentina. So we applied the tariffs to some, but not to all. So those are two violations of these basic rules of the WTO. And challenges were brought at the WTO. And in the WTO, the United States said, we think these were imposed as a matter of national security. To which then the panel at the WTO said, okay, fine, United States, but the national security provision of the WTO says that you can break your tariff commitments and you can discriminate if the the goods involved, if you think this is essential for your national security and it relates to nuclear materials or trade in arms, ammunition or implements of war or is a measure taken in a time of war or other emergency. In other words, it has to fit into one of three boxes. 
Right. The United States was asked repeatedly, which box does it fit in? And repeatedly, the United right. States said, we're right. not answering that question. We think it's our national security. You can't judge us. You can't question us. If we say it's national security, you have to take our word for it. Wow. And the panel basically said, no, actually, if you want to invoke the national security defense, you have to fit into one of these three boxes. Which one do you fit into? But but it's, it's a little bit like that old line, and I'm butchering this, but some president said about the Supreme Court, you know, let them enforce it, right? They can make the ruling, but let them enforce it. And, of course, Supreme Court does not have sword or right. whatever the saying is, right? So WTO, and, and, the WTO is going to do what to the United States now? So the only thing that the WTO can do is make a ruling that asks the United States to come into compliance. And as F you say, the United States decides we don't want to comply. The other option is then other countries are given the legal right to retaliate against the United States, to impose duties or other measures on U.S. exports. And the theory is that if enough countries start imposing measures against the United States, it puts pressure on the United States to, to lower the tariffs, to get rid of them, to do something else in order to become consistent with the WTO rules. So the United States is still saying it supports and is committed to the WTO. What do you see as the way forward here? Well, the way forward is is some significant reforms at the WTO. And I think it's pretty clear that the WTO needs to be reformed across, if you will, all of its main functions. I mean, its, its principal function is a forum for negotiations. There have been very few successful negotiations since 1995. And so it's clear that we need new trade rules on things like digital trade, e-commerce, uh, privacy, data. There's a whole series of areas that are completely unregulated by the WTO and and we need rules. So it needs to get back to becoming that forum in which you can negotiate rules. Second thing it obviously needs to figure out is how to reform this issue of settling disputes. Um, how do we accommodate the concerns of the United States uh, that we end up with a system that doesn't take away rights that the United States thought it had, that doesn't add on obligations, but nonetheless creates a fair transparent, open way to settle disputes that actually work. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. You know, and then the last thing that the WTO is really doing is trying to make sure that you can find out what everybody else's trade rules are. And that means a lot of countries have to provide notifications and and provide all of this information. And again, a lot of work to do there where a lot of countries are very far behind on disclosing what's going on in their country in terms of their trading regime. So across the House, if you will, the WTO needs to be updated, modernized, and reformed. The problem is that can only happen with U.S. leadership. It really is going to take U.S. leadership. And at this point, it's not so clear exactly how interested um, the Biden administration in the United States is on really digging in and leading that reform effort. Jennifer Hillman is a professor of law at Georgetown University, also a former member of the appellate body of the World Trade Organization. Professor Hillman, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. There you go. Everything you want to know about the WTO in like 15 minutes. Not so bad. I feel both enlightened and still baffled. Still, still but right? Well, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> what a anyway, mess, right? If, if you learned something about the WTO, you know, tell us what you learned. Send us an email. Give us a note. Whatever. 508-UB-SMART is the phone number. 508-827-6278. Or just a plain old email. Make me smart at marketplace.org. We'll be right back. All right, we're going to do some news. Amy Scott, you go first. 
No, I think you should go first because yours is kind of related to what we just talked about, right? Mine is. And I saw this on Bloomberg this morning. Totally fascinating. Given all the Sturm und Drang of uh, relations between the United States and China these days, right? There's technology challenges. There are national security challenges. Here's what Bloomberg is reporting. U.S. government data through November suggests that imports and exports in 2022 between the United States and China will add up to an all-time high or at least come very close. Beijing, in fact, just published its own full-year figures that show record trade of around $760 billion. Now, I will point out that this is happening even though there is still a trade war on. All those Trump-era tariffs that Professor Hillman alluded to, not the steel and aluminum ones, but the other ones that actually were the Trump-era trade war with China, they're still in effect. $350 $350 billion worth of products that we import into this country from China are still being tariffed at rates up to 25%. And still the trade is coming. And I just think that's completely it's fascinating. Slow down. Completely <laughs> fascinating. It is, yeah. you know, and, and here's the other thing. And, and I talked about this actually in, a, in an earlier conversation I had with, with David Brancaccio and our boss on a whole different thing. Anyway, David had a really interesting interview this morning with Zanny Minton Beddoes of The Economist on The Morning Show. And David asked her about about globalization and whether it's fracturing, because that's part of what they're talking about at Davos, the rich people global elite meeting over in in Switzerland. And Zanny said, you know, I don't think globalization is going away, but it's fracturing and changing. The underpinnings will remain. And I would say that trade is the underpinning of globalization. And clearly it's still going strong if you look at this data. So that's what I got. Yeah. So all this talk about, you know, turning inward is not really happening when you look at at the numbers. Exactly. So there you go. What do you got? Cool. Well, I'm going to switch gears completely because I saw a story yesterday that uh, I just had to had to share because I'm thinking about it. You know, I've been doing a lot of reporting on on too much water, sea level rise, and housing in South Florida. This is the opposite of that. Jack Healy of the New York Times had a story yesterday about this community outside of Scottsdale, Arizona, called Rio Verde Foothills. It's unincorporated, so not an official part of the city um, of Scottsdale. But for years, they've had their they've been buying water from Scottsdale. It's delivered by truck, stored in underground tanks in the yards of these homes. And earlier this month, the city of Scottsdale said, "We can't do that anymore." Hmm. We're not going to sell you water, basically cutting 500 to 700 homes off from their water supply. And that's, of course, because of this, you know, 20-year drought, reservoirs like Lake Mead drying up. The city said we've got to prioritize our own residents. Um, And I think what was especially interesting to me about this is that, you know, basically these houses probably shouldn't be there in the Mm -hmm. first place. And developers took advantage of, of a loophole in Arizona state law, which requires subdivisions with six or more lots to prove they have a hundred year water supply. Wow. So guess how wow. many lots these wow. little mini developments are? One less. There'll be like four or five One less houses. Than limit. Yeah. Holy yeah. cow. And so they don't have to prove they have a water supply. They build these little mini subdivisions, and now residents are paying the price. Their water bills have gone up by a few hundred dollars or more. Um, and I think this is just going to be playing out all over the West mm-hmm. as you know we we balance the need for more housing with the lack of water. Yeah, totally. Absolutely right. God, that's so funny. Four or five houses. I know. Uh, it's yeah. just so dastardly yep. <laughs> comes to mind. Yep. All right. That's it uh, for the news. Let's do some mailbag, shall we? 
All right. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right. Last week, Kimberly and I talked about January the 6th, the implications for this economy and this democracy. Sydney sent us this. From my point of view, really the thing that is declining democracy is the lack of civics education, especially in America. If all of America got a better education on civics and how small d democracy is actually supposed to work, I think people would not be fooled as often as they are by the folks that tell them lies, such as stop the steal. Thanks. Mm. Yeah, can't argue with that at all. Can't argue with nope. that at all. I would add history to that. Yep. Civics yep. and history. Totally. Absolutely. 100%. Uh, okay, on the way out, uh, as we always do, the answer to the Make Me Smart question, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? Climate scientist and author Kimberly Nicholas sent us this. Something that I thought I knew that I've taught my students for a long time is the statistic that the 100 biggest oil companies are responsible for 71% of industrial greenhouse gas emissions. And often a conclusion that people draw from that is that Our individual actions don't matter because all that really can move the lever is big, powerful companies. The thing that I learned that put these numbers in context and made me realize I had been wrong about how I was thinking about them was that it's also true that over 70% of global climate pollution comes from households. We have huge roles to play as powerful agents of positive change to take climate action including holding big companies and governments to account, but also including taking action within our daily lives. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. It's like, I'm going to date myself. Maybe you remember these too. Those old bumper stickers back in the 70s, think globally, act locally. Remember those? Oh, yeah. Yeah, those. Absolutely. That's, that's fundamentally that's what Kimberly's saying. Yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, we're out of here. Uh, new answers, please, to the Make Me Smart question. We need them. We want to get you on the pod. Uh, if you haven't sent one in before, or even if you have... Send us another one. Leave us a voicemail at 508-827-6278, 508-UB-SMART. Or as Amy likes to say when she's here, and I don't say it, those are all letters. U-B-S-M-A-R-T. <laughs> I'm just saying. That's clarifying. It is. Totally. You're absolutely right. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolf Fess writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras. Today's program was engineered by Juan Carlos Torado with mixing by Becca Weinman. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our acting senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcast now. Francesca Levy is the executive director. Director? I don't even know what that is. Executive director of digital. Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. Nice job, Kai, getting through the credits. Good job, pal. Well, that makes two of us. (laughs) 